Well, I had a dream last night, uh, and my dream was that only three people showed up this morning, so I'm glad that that didn't come to fruition. So thank you all for being here. Um, This morning, um, we are going to be in Psalm 42. So if you have your Bibles uh, with you, turn to Psalm 42. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. You're more than welcome to pull that out. Uh, Psalms is basically right smack dab in the middle of your Bible, and so Psalm chapter 42. Like I mentioned before, uh, my name is Jake. I'm one of the pastors here. Pastor Nick is uh, spending this month, not, not preaching, but spending this month uh, in an enormous amount of prayer and study um, in looking at the, the overall vision for the church and how we are doing and where we're going um, in studying and also preparing for sermons down the road. And so um, uh, he, he, he's doing that this month. He'll be back next month, so don't worry. Don't... Uh, don't fret. Uh, but this month we are going, uh, we're looking through the Psalms. And now, of course, every book in the Bible is incredibly important, but there's something special about the Psalms as they connect to us on a different level. See, in the Psalms, we see the full spectrum of human emotion. We see in the Psalms an often disregarded part of what it means to be human, our emotions. John Calvin famously said that the Psalms are the anatomy to all parts of the soul. And what he meant was every experience that we encounter in the Christian life can be found in the Psalms. They give us words to express joy, loss, anxiety, fear, sadness, thankfulness, and grief. They put to words the deepest feelings of our hearts, and they even teach us how to sing those feelings back to God himself. See, God, God made humans with emotions, and it tends to exalt logical reason above passion when making decisions and Emotions in humans, and and especially in men, are often suppressed. And what I've been praying for this morning is that we would allow the Word of God to reach us on an emotional level. Not that we would become overly emotional and let them take complete control of our minds, uh, but that we would be vulnerable with God and with each other. Many of us uh, have been taught to stuff our emotions, but my goal today is that we would remove the masks we place on our hearts and we would worship God not only with our minds, but with our hearts and with our emotions. So with that in mind, let's read Psalm 42. And so I'm going to ask you to please stand as we read God's word. As a reminder, we stand out of reverence and awe for God and for his word. This is the words of Holy God, and so let us read. Psalm 42, verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? 
These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song was, uh, is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the impression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you, you, you come to us this morning um, out of Psalm 42. Um, as we expect you to, to move, we, um, we want you to move in our hearts that we would love you more deeply, not just love you when things are good, but when things are a struggle. Father, would you be real to us this morning? Would you be evident to us this morning? Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are receptive to your word so that we may bear fruit and glorify you and share the gospel with our neighbor. Lord, teach us of who you are this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Horatio Spafford was a very successful Christian lawyer and businessman in Chicago in the mid-1800s. He and his wife, Anna, had five children. They had four girls and one boy. He was a devout Christian, and he was close friends with Dwight Moody and other evangelists in Chicago. Things seemed to really be looking up for the Spafford family. However, in 1871, things began to change. Their young son died of pneumonia. A few months later, the Great Chicago Fire wiped out almost all of his life savings and investments. A few years later, some of his business ventures had, had returned and he began to flourish again. Spafford and his family sought to aid Dwight Moody in a British evangelism campaign. Unfortunately, he was kept back by an unexpected business problem, um, and so he sent Anna and his four daughters ahead of him, and he would join up a few days later. During the journey to Europe, the ship carrying Anna and his four daughters crashed into another boat and sank in 12 minutes. Several days later, Horatio received a telegram from his wife, that simply said, saved, alone. Horatio boarded a ship immediately to go join his wife. 
During the voyage, one of the crew members noted to Horatio the spot where the boat had sank and his daughters had drowned. He walked down to his cabin and penned these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. When life is overwhelming and you can't seem to go on, what do you do? I think all of us can remember a time in our life when we have been overwhelmingly overcome with grief. Maybe it was a rough breakup in high school when you you never thought you could love again. Maybe when you were young, your, your, your parents divorced. Maybe it's because your family has seemed to just fall apart. When you lost a job or maybe you're trapped in a job that you hate. Maybe someone cheated on you, your spouse left you. Maybe the chronic pain that you feel, your body feels all the time. Maybe it's something you did. Maybe it's something that was done to you. Maybe you feel so alone and that there is no one around. Maybe it's not based on a specific event, but the clouds always seem to be weighing down on you. It's been days or even weeks or months where getting out of bed is a challenge. Life seems to be crashing down and you don't know what to do. Life seems hopeless. What I love about the Bible and the Psalms in particular is they deal with the hard issues of life. It allows us to process these issues in light of who God is. Psalm 42 comes to us this morning to help us through grief and despair and depression. Life on earth is not all sunshine and rainbows. And my guess is that some of you are struggling with some sort of desperation in your life. And if you're not now, I know you can think back on times that you were, um, and I know there will be times in the future when it comes, and Psalm 42 is here to help us. And before I continue, I just want to have a quick comment about depression and, and mental health issues. Estimated one in four people deal with a mental health issue whether depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, or the many others. And I'm not talking about the the, the TikTok, social media, oh, I feel sad sometimes type of issues. Some of you are deeply struggling. One in five pastors are dealing with depression, and suicide among pastors has doubled in the last 10 years. White males are four times more likely to commit suicide than any other demographic in the United States. Seek help. And I know it's hard to talk about it, but talk to your table group leaders, give me a call, church, check on those around you. The church should be a place where those struggling with mental health issues do not have to struggle alone. Our culture doesn't do well with grief. 
We don't know what to do. Often when hard things happen and depression comes, we get from our friends and our families uh, uh, platitudes like, oh, it's going to work out. Don't worry about it. There is light at the end of the tunnel. One day it will be better. We try and distract ourselves through movies and entertainment and, or make ourselves busy so that we don't have to think about what's really going on. Psalm 42 shows us a better way. Instead of succumbing to the despair we feel and instead of trying to sweep it under the rug, Psalm 42 helps us process rightly with God and help us focus our hearts and cling to our Savior. What, are we, what we are going to see through this psalm is that in the midst of despair, we have three tensions to acknowledge. Attention is a situation where two opposite things seem to be true at the same time. We live with many tensions in our lives. We want our kids to develop and mature, but we also want them to stay kids. We want freedom, but we also know that we need to give up our rights and for safety and order because going 90 miles an hour down College Street is not a good idea. As I get older, I am finding out that when I wake up in the morning, my bed is both so incredibly comfortable, but also my body is so incredibly sore. In the midst of despair, Psalm 42 gives us three tensions. It shows us that our current circumstances do not match our past experiences. It highlights that we know God is in control, but yet at the same time, he seems so absent. And finally, it helps us to acknowledge our feelings, but place our hope in God. Our first tension, in the midst of depression, it feels like our past, our present circumstances do not match our past experiences. Look at verse 1 through 4. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise and a multitude-keeping festival." The psalmist uh, begins with an explanation of his current emotional state. It is his response as if someone were to ask, hey, hey man, how are, you, how are you really doing? As the deer pants for water, so he is desperate for God. We don't know why this man is the way that he is. We are not told what happened in his life to cause such a distraught condition, but whether outside circumstances or internal struggle, this man is struggling. I've lived most of my life in the desert. There have been times where it's been hot outside and I've, I've been out working or doing yard work or something like that, and then all of the sudden I become acutely aware of how thirsty I am. It becomes an all-consuming focus that I don't have what I need. When the joy and satisfaction of the nearness of God is removed, the dryness of our soul becomes apparent. 
This is not a cry out to the Lord out of an already full soul. This is a cry out of desperation that if God does not move, he will most certainly be undone. His tears have been his food day and night. This is not merely a sadness from a single bad day. It is overwhelming depression that this man is struggling through, and it has been going on for days. The new day brings not new hope, but another reminder of the absence of God. The night comes, and loneliness again descends like a weight. The night gives way to the morning, and the cycle continues. What makes spiritual depression worse is he can remember the days in which he worshiped God in gladness of heart. He remembers in verse 4 all the days when there would be glad shouts and songs of praise and he would sing with joy of the goodness of God. There were days when God seemed so precious and so near and so sweet, but now there is only emptiness. His soul once feasted on the goodness of God, but now there is only famine. And I know some of you are here. Whether it's through changes in circumstances such as a lost job, a wayward child, a cancer diagnosis, or cycles of depression that you just can't seem to catch your breath. You feel empty and your heart yearns for joy that never comes. What do we do with this tension? What do we do when we can remember the joy that we once felt, but it seems so distant? We can remember when God seemed to be doing amazing things in our lives, and we felt as if our, our faith was so close to being sight. What do we do when the joy that comes from faith in Jesus is only a memory? Our circumstances now or the condition of our heart does not match what it once was. And it's in these moments when we are in the depths of soul that we are acutely reminded of how good things once were. And we start to question whether or not the goodness we used to feel was actually real. What do we do when we are stuck in this tension? We remember. The psalmist remembers throughout Israel's history whenever God would act in amazing and profound, magnificent ways, he would call them to remember. For example, when Israel crossed the Jordan River into the Holy Land, in the book of Joshua, they, they piled up stones as a reminder, as a memorial to what God had done. Joshua 4, 6 through 7 says, When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the water of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off so that the stone shall be a to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Israel would constantly set up these Ebenezer stones that would remind them of the faithfulness of God. In times of struggle, of deep struggle, remember the faithfulness of God. Remember from where God has taken you, what God has done for you, ways in which the Holy Spirit has shown you the amazingness of Christ when you read your Bible Remember the days in which you overflowed with joy in your Savior. Those days really happened. 
set up your Ebenezer to tether you to the goodness and faithfulness of God. Even when in the present time those, those memories have lost their luster and they seem in the distant past, God has been faithful to you in the past, and so remind yourself that God is true even in the darkness. In college, my, my wife was mentored by a lady, an older lady named Shirley Peters. Shirley Peters uh, and her husband Art helped to found the college that we went to. And Shirley at the time was a, was a widow, and she invested her time into the girls of the school and mentored them and prayed with them and sought to grow them in their faith and maturity. And Shirley once said something that has resounded with Abigail and has defined the seasons in life which darkness was overwhelming. Shirley said, don't forget in the darkness that which you knew to be true in the light. Don't forget in the darkness that which you knew to be true in the light. The darkness does not make the light any less true. Jesus is still king. He is still for you. And even though it doesn't feel that way now, remember when you were worshiping the true God in spirit and in truth. However, as this psalm continues, the screw gets tighter and tighter, and the downward spiral continues as we look to our next tension to acknowledge, picking it up in the second half of verse 5. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep. And the roar of your waterfalls and all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go to mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with deadly wounds in my bones, they, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? The tension that, this, that the psalmist is dealing with is one that almost all of us deal with in times when life seems overwhelming. We know that God is in control of all things, but it seems like he is nowhere to be found. The waves of his circumstances continue to break over him. There are times where this seems to be the case. When I was in, when I was in college uh, in San Diego, the first time I, I went out to the beach, I was really excited, a boy from Arizona going out to the ocean, and I just go running out into the ocean, and I get hit by some waves, and uh, it, it, it's not so bad, and then a big wave comes over and crashes over me, knocks me over, and I go spinning backwards underwater. Finally, I'm able to get some ground, push my head up, and then another wave hits me right over the head again, and then again and again and again. I made it. I, I turned out okay. Um, but this psalmist is getting hammered by wave after wave after wave. He, his heart is barely treading water, and yet the waves keep coming. Some of you are drowning in the depths of sorrow, and it only seems to get worse. The psalmist acknowledges something that we would do good to acknowledge ourselves in the midst of trial, no matter how difficult it is. God is in control 
of our suffering. He says, all your breakers have gone over me. One of the hardest things to deal with in the midst of suffering is that God is in control, mostly because it feels like God is not in control and that there's pure chaos all around. It's almost as if God is fighting the battle, but he's losing, and the world and the wrongs are winning. See, we believe in the sovereignty of God as creator of the universe. He, he, he has all power to do whatever he pleases, and this is no less true in the darkness and in the light. I'm not sure why this specific suffering has, has come upon you or why it has been the way that it has, but I want you to know that it is not detached from the sovereign power of God. Whether circumstantial, spiritual, or emotional, suffering is not a form of judgment on the believer. See, the psalmist says that, yes, the waves of God are crashing over him. But look at verse 8. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love. See, the waves are not constant steadfast love, unending loving kindness of God. It's in the heat of affliction that the things of this world and the, the unholiness of our hearts are stripped away and melted off. The purpose of suffering is to bring us into closer relationship with God. Because we trust in the steadfast love of God, we know that the breakers that wash over us are for our good no matter how hard it feels. The psalmist knows that the breakers that wash over him and weigh him down are from the Lord. However, on the other hand, he seems, uh, God seems completely absent in his pain. With our mind, we know God is in control, but he feels so distant, so uncaring. As you see in verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why have you forgotten me? We feel the weight of the world and our hearts are empty. It can feel like we have been disregarded by God, that he does not care for us any longer. It's in those moments that we should take note of the psalmist and ask why. It's okay to ask why of God. I don't know what is plaguing you, Christian, or what will plague you in the future, but you can ask why of God. He may not show you at the moment or even years to come, but our God is big enough to handle our whys, and in the midst of suffering, when we ask why, God hears us. What the psalmist feels internally is echoed in those around him. Verse 10, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Not only when things go wrong, do we question God, but it's almost uh, as if unbelievers see this and go, ha, see that God that you, that you worship, that you care about? He, he doesn't love you. Or clearly the God that you worship does not exist. Often it's not the outside circumstances that are the biggest struggle. It is the feeling that God has left you and the profound loneliness that comes with it. Sometimes it's as it as it is as if, if God were near, we could tackle anything. But the absence of God makes your plight all the more hopeless. In the midst of this tension between knowing God is in control and feeling like he is absent, 
Author and pastor um, Dane Ortland says this, We are forced into one or two positions, either cynicism and coldness of heart or true depth of God. When that movement comes, sent by the hand of the tender father, will we believe what we have confessed about God to be true or will we suspect him, suspect him of deserting us? As he says, we either go to coldness or depth of God. And have we not seen that so profoundly in so many ways in the past three years? When hard things happen, people abandon the faith. When struggle happens, people leave the church. When suffering hits, people accept the belief that God is not who he says he is. See, suffering shows us what we truly have faith in. Will you run to Christ or will you run to something else in safety? Ortland continues, we cannot go on as before. God will not let us remain the people we were as long as the waves reached only our waist. Our last tension brings us to the chorus of this psalm in verse 5 and then repeated in verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Our last tension is that we acknowledge our feelings, but put our hope in God. I just want to say again that it's okay to have feelings. Often when we see someone discouraged, we immediately want them to be not discouraged. They seem sad, and we try to do whatever we can to make them happy. We want to quickly fix the problem. We do this all the time with our kids. We also do it with adults, too. Pastor Zach Eswine wrote a book about the depression suffered by famous pastor Charles Spurgeon in a book called Spurgeon's Sorrows, Realistic Hope for Those Who Suffer. In it, he says, our salvation messages will prove inadequate if they do not meaningfully account for the large portions of reality that cause screaming in the world, particularly with depression. It has long been recognized that a spirituality focused only on sunshine, positive thinking, immediacy, and quick-fix Bible quoting breaks down impotently as soon as melancholy comes. When we attempt to help sufferers of depression without this kind of reality in our words, they will not hear us because they will think that we have not yet heard them. Quick fixes to those suffering are no fixes at all. There are many things that cause us in our world to be discouraged, and it's okay to be discouraged by discouraging things. We have a lot more, though, a lot more and stronger reasons to be encouraged, but even mature believers can experience profound dissatisfaction with life. Many of us need to learn how to feel again. We have so trained ourselves for years that feelings are bad and that anytime someone talks of hard stuff, we need to to bottle it up. If things aren't going well, then we we put on a face, pretend like everything is all right. 
We smother our hearts with food or alcohol or entertainment. Could it be that you are unwilling to put your phone down or you cannot stop watching TV because you are unwilling to acknowledge your emotions? Now, this doesn't mean that we give feelings complete control over us. Your feelings are real. They exist. They are really affecting you in profound ways. However, our emotions do not always accurately reflect reality. Our feelings are real, but sometimes they are not true. Your daughter doesn't listen to you, so you get angry and throw something. You are really angry, but that anger doesn't reflect the reality of the situation, namely a two-year-old trying to usurp your authority. So with this in mind, we acknowledge our emotions. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? But we do not give them full weight of control over us. Instead, let us follow the psalmist that through our emotions, let us place our hope in God. He says to hope in God. He lifts his eyes from his circumstances and fixes his eyes on his Savior. Hope in God. When the waves are crashing, hope in God. When you feel stuck and trapped and cannot escape, hope in God. This is not a message of, oh, if you just had more faith, if you just believed more, you wouldn't feel this way. It is not the amount of our faith, but the object of our faith that we hope. We don't try and well up more faith in trials. We cling desperately to Christ. When life is chaos and you're being tossed by the waves, you hold fast to the rock. We trust in the sureness of Christ, the solidness of the rock to hold us. When a pilot is flying a plane, they have an incredible amount of instruments to help them. You've probably seen a cockpit at some point in your life. There's a lot of dials going on. These instruments tell him or her the plane's speed, the elevation off the ground, the angle in which the wings are at. If a pilot was to fly into a cloud or fly at night, looking out the window is actually incredibly dangerous. Pilot after pilot, not trusting in the instruments, but trusting in their own sight, have gotten so turned around that they have crashed the plane because they thought they were cruising straight where instead they were hurtling straight towards the ground. See, when a pilot flies into a cloud and cannot see where they are going, they don't put their faith in what their eyes can see, but they put their faith in the instruments that tell them the truth. The pilot has to believe that his instruments are a true picture of reality. In the same way, when crushing weight is on us, we put our faith in God and cling to him. Hope in God. Do not trust completely in your circumstances or your emotions, but put your hope in God. Psychologist and counselor Dr. Richard Winter wrote in his book, Roots of Sorrow, he says, without realistic hope, all is lost. Realistic hope is the door out of blackness and depression and despair. Hope 
in God. This is not a mindless hope or a a well-wishing that things would be better. It is trusting in the character of God and that he has not changed and God will continue to be faithful to his promises and see us to the end. Your Savior is the rock to which you cling to in the storms. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Why are you cast down, O my soul? We need to look at this because who, who is telling, who is he telling to hope in God? Is he, is, he telling, is he telling us, the reader, to hope in God? No, he's telling his own soul to hope in God. He is preaching the gospel to himself. In the midst of suffering, tell your soul to hope in God. 20th century preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones famously said this about this psalm. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is by the fact that you are listening to yourself and not talking to yourself? Take those moments that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are still talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday. Someone is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing himself to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you, the, why are, why are you cast down, O oh my soul? He asked. His soul has been repressing him, crushing him, so he stands up and he says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Christian, Preach the promises of God to yourself. When you are carried away by anxiety or emotions and you don't know what to do, we stop and tell our soul to put our hope in God. Pastor John Piper gives us another example of this when he says, whenever your heart starts to be anxious about the future, preach to your heart and say, heart, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to be afraid of the future? And so nullify the promises of God. No, heart, I will not exalt myself with anxiety. I will humble myself in peace and joy and trust this great and precious promise of God that he cares for me. We don't give ourselves pep talks. We don't give ourselves pithy, cliche statements to cling to. We don't merely recount all the things, uh, all the good in our lives or, or count our blessings. We don't pull ourselves up and push the feelings down and continue to walk forward. We remind ourselves of the faithful God who keeps his promises. Your Savior cares for you. Remind yourself of that. Friends, remind each other of that. Remind each other that we are purchased by the very blood of Christ. We're not purchased by something worthless. We're purchased by the most precious blood of Christ. You are his forever, and he cares for you. Preach to your heart to hope in God. The promises of God do not exempt us from suffering and calamity, but they enable us to suffer with hope. 
The psalmist has supreme confidence in the character of God, that he will once again praise God. Last week, uh, Vince mentioned the Chronicles of Narnia. And my favorite part in the movie, um, I don't know if it's in the book, but it's in the movie and it's really good, um, is when the white witch, after they have their, their, their private uh, conversation with Aslan, um, the white witch asks Aslan, how do I know your promises will be kept? Aslan immediately roars at fury with the white, at the white witch essentially saying, how dare you question my willingness and my ability to keep my promises? How dare you question my faithfulness? Christian, Jesus always keeps his promises. For those of you who are suffering, and for those of you who will suffer in the future, who know and understand the weight of despair and depression of the psalmist, it can feel isolating. Everyone else seems to be doing great, And I'm the only one going through this. You can not only feel distant from God, but from everyone else. This psalm comes to show us that we are not alone in our suffering. There are others throughout Scripture, throughout the history of the church, throughout Timberline, that can walk with you in suffering and help you to hope in Jesus. Pastor Ligon Duncan says this, Friend, your life may be filled with far more suffering than my own, but Scripture teaches that our troubles do not belong to you alone. God places psalms of lament like this one in the Scriptures so that we would all learn how to cry in our sadness and our grief together. May we learn to grieve together and to cling to hope in God. Duncan continues, though, with a warning. But friend, if you don't know Christ, then you are alone in your suffering, and you are in a far, far worse place than this psalmist. The hopelessness experienced by this psalmist was only apparent and temporary, but those who without repenting of their sin will know true hopelessness, that which is real and eternal. Hell has no light at the end of the tunnel. Not only in Jesus do we have one who rescues us, but we have a Savior who has entered into our suffering. He knows suffering not from a distance, but up close experientially. Isaiah 53, 3 says that the Messiah, Jesus, was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows. In, in the New Testament, we are told that at the death of Lazarus, Jesus despaired and he wept. Jesus despaired over Israel and their unwillingness to see him as the Messiah. His hometown rejects him. His disciples desert him. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus is able to sympathize with us because he is like us. Jesus knows what it is like to feel alone and separated from God as on the cross he cries out, My God, why have you forsaken me? If you are suffering this morning, 
you are in good company. Our Savior suffered, but he didn't suffer for himself. He suffered for us. Isaiah 53.3 says that Jesus was a man of sorrows, but 53.4, the very next verse, says that Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. See, the truth of our Savior is that he suffered for us in our place. He bore in his body on the cross our sins. He was forsaken and despised and rejected by God, so we are not. When life implodes, remember that Jesus went through the greatest nightmare of all in our place. The tidal wave of judgment from God washed over another so that it need not wash over us. We are not alone in our suffering because Jesus is with us in our suffering. But here's the beauty of the gospel. Christ's suffering ended. On the third day, he defeated death and was resurrected. And now he stands in victory over death and sin. So we know our suffering is not in vain. Because through our suffering, we cling to the hope that Jesus is alive and that one day our suffering will end completely. No matter how deep our suffering is now, we know that there is an end to it. Jesus has risen. He is coming again. Joy will be made full. And we trust through tear-filled eyes that God will get us to that day. So Christian, suffer in the belief, as the famous song goes, that one day our faith will be made sight. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even then we will say, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we echo the words of the psalmist that if you are not here, we would most certainly be undone. Lord, if you are not near the hopelessness will overtake us. And Lord, I pray that now as we take communion and respond um, in, in, in worship and respond in, in taking of the elements, Lord, will you show us the suffering that you went through on our behalf, that we would place our hope in you. And whether things are going really well now, praise God. If things are a struggle now, Lord, would you be evident to us Lord, you tell us that you are the God of all comfort. Lord, comfort your people today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.